dangerously close. My guest today is Julie Marin. Julie is the director of American Bolshevik. Why not just kill them? (laughs) Coexistence with the coyote. (laughs) Through interviews with biologists, activists, a hunter, and a New York Times best-selling historian, American Bolshevik details the century-long attempt to eradicate this intelligent predator, an attempt which inadvertently drove the expansion of the coyote's territory into nearly every rural, suburban, and urban area across the lower 48. As the coyote's territory has expanded into new regions like coastal New England, populations of humans in these areas are learning how to coexist with these animals and to appreciate the role they play in supporting a diverse and balanced ecosystem. Julie Marin is an award-winning director who explores issues around science, media, and law. Her latest film, American Bolshevik, will be released on Amazon Prime Video and Apple TV in January of 2023. What's up, Julie? Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. You know, i i had I had some questions just that I was that I thought that I was going to jump out the gate with, but there was one that um, I actually want to just it just it's it's the first thing that struck me when uh, when I when you sent me your film and all and everything is the title of the film American Bolshevik, and I am familiar with the Bolsheviks in the Russian Revolution. Uh, what does that mean in your in your film title? That, that's a great question, and I know that um, uh, you know I I and I love the title, um, and I actually got it from a piece in uh, Dan Flores's book. And, and as, as you mentioned, he's an historian who wrote the best selling um, the the New York Times best selling novel American Bolshevik. Uh, in, uh, sorry, he he wrote um, Coyote America, and in that he details kind of this long history of the relationship of humans with coyotes, um, you know, prior to the European settlers. And then once the European settlers arrived, sort of how they changed the landscape and how that changed, you know, that humans relationship with wild animals and in particular coyotes changed. And, you know, in, in that book, he details some of this history, um, which beginning with Mark Twain and his best-selling novel uh, called Roughing It, which I know uh, most people are familiar with. And in that novel, you know, in that sort of, it, 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 it's, a, it's a comedic novel. He really sort of describes his travels across the American Great Plains and his, you know, encountering the coyote. And he really describes it as this, you know, this um, sort of, skulking vermin and really uses these very um, negative descriptions of the animal, which are, which are funny, but they're very negative descriptions of the coyote. And, you know, Dan mentions in his book and in the interview that we do with him in the, in the, the film that from that point on sort of the, the new Americans, the European settlers that have come to, to what became the United States uh, really developed this perception of the coyote uh, based on initially on Mark Twain's description. And then later on, you know, over the course of many decades, as we tried to eradicate these animals, there was actually a PR campaign that was waged against all predators. And in particular, the coyote, because they they proved to be very resilient. And Dan traces um this sort of this evolution to an article that appeared in Scientific American in 1920, where they described the coyote as being the original Bolshevik of North America. So obviously that was a very loaded term at the time, right? I think it's still a pretty loaded term, but it really, um, I think it very succinctly describes, um, you know, the relationship that we've had with the coyote over more than a century. And, you know, we can talk a little bit about it going forward, but, you know, we've really attempt, made every attempt imaginable to eradicate this animal and, you know, right down to PR campaigns over many decades. So that that's the genesis of that title. Okay. Well, wow. That's, that is a, uh, <laughs> that's a, histor- a, a deep uh, historical route for the title. I was a, uh, <laughs> I, I'm not even going to pretend that I that I know the meaning of very many Russian words and or even the word Bolshevik uh, very accurately. 
but I do believe that I recall the word Bolshevik, like in, in like in a literal translation, means something like uh, the mini, meaning uh, you know, mm-hmm. kind of. And I guess in, in the Russian Revolution, they meant that as the people, you know, we the many people, you know, as opposed to the very small ruling class. So I don't know. Maybe you could, that uh, maybe that's not a bad application for the coyotes because as much as people try to kill them off, there are many coyotes. <laughs> no, I, I actually like, I, I like what you've done there because you've taken a word that um, in America at least has very, has most often had very negative connotations, right? The Bolsheviks, the Bolshevik re- revolution, we've kind of had a negative perception of Bolsheviks and it was, you know, in the press, the word was certainly used in a very negative way, but sort of like owning that and changing, evolving that meaning back to, you know, what it meant to the Russians. So I actually, I really like that interpretation actually. Yeah. And I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to go crazy and just keep <laughs> going down this rabbit hole and I won't go much further, but I guess too, I, I don't know a ton about, uh, you know, studying like coyote behavior as a species, but they do seem like, you know, I mean, they're, they're pack animals, uh, they're cooperative animals. And so in that way too, that's kind of a, you know, a socialist communist type of animal society. <laughs> okay. I'll stop there. I, I know, I know I'm getting, I'm getting ridiculous now, but, but what I do no, want to, no, I, <laughs> I like it. I like it. I, but I do want to, uh, to your point that you brought up with, and that's the, there's this negativity uh, associated and it, like, you, you know, it goes back to the time of, you know, you know, Mark Twain is saying negative things about coyotes and I'm sure since far, you know, way before that. And I, I just want to go ahead and say that uh, I like coyotes a lot. <clears throat> I think they're a cool animal. I think that the mythologies that people have created about them are cool, but obviously coyotes are a controversial animal, like we were saying. And uh, there are plenty of people that outright hate coyotes. And uh, what causes all of this animosity from humans? It seems like a lot. No, it really does. Um, it's amazing to me too, because, you know, I, I, I also love the coyote. I think it's a really amazing, adaptable, just really interesting animal. And, um, you know, I, I was kind of shocked actually to realize how much animosity there is for this animal. So I, I grew up primarily on the East Coast, New England area, and you know, during my entire childhood, I, I never saw a coyote. I, you know, the only time I had an interaction with coyote uh, was, you know, Wiley Coyote on Saturday morning cartoons. Yeah. And, I, you know, I had no reason to dislike them. You know, I, I think any encounter with wild animals is, is pretty fascinating. I never had any reason to dislike the coyote. Um, but over the past several decades, um, we've started to encounter coyotes in every part of the United States. So in all cities, they've moved east, they've moved into the southeast, into the north, they've kind of gone up through Canada and come down to New England. And so now more people are having interactions with coyotes. Um, and so, of course, we're experiencing you know, more issues in areas where we haven't had issues in the past. They've sort of been in the news more and more um, because of this expansion of their territory. So from my perspective, um, it was really, you know, sort of understanding that they're kind of moving into these territories and people are having to, you know, having to coexist with this animal that they've never encountered before in their lives. And so that interaction has been a little bit different, I think, from the interactions with coyotes in other parts of the country where, you know, they've existed for millennia and people are kind of used to coexisting with them. Of course, they already have, you know, in many cases, a kind of a negative perception of them based on, as I mentioned, and I won't go into too much detail here, but that kind of that long history and the PR campaign against them. So it's kind of interesting because I think this expansion sort of gives us um, an opportunity to reassess our relationship with the coyote and to really understand their behavior a little bit better. But, um, you know, as I mentioned, expanding into these new areas where people haven't experienced that type of interaction before, like here in New England, um, 
it's just given rise to a whole host of new studies uh, that have been initiated to understand them. And we've really had to kind of grapple with, okay, we've never had to deal with, you know, a, a, any kind of significant predator here in New England yeah. ever since the extirpation of the wolf, you know, uh, 150 years ago. So how do we coexist with this animal and what does it mean to coexist with this animal? Um, you know, I think that that's really been at the forefront of people's minds and it's been, you know, it's been in the news. Um, you know, certainly there have been some negative interactions, but we really need to take a step back and kind of take a look at, you know, what does this mean to us to have this new animal in our midst? And what are the benefits that it brings? How do we need to change our behavior to coexist with it? So from my perspective, um, you know, I think it gives us a lot of opportunities um, and you know, especially here in New England, I, I want to kind of talk about that. But your question was really, why do people hate this animal so much, right? Why is yeah. there so much animosity? And I, I, I kind of want to take a step back. When I was researching this film, um, I initially I started looking at, you know, coyotes in New England. We started um, kind of interviewing uh, a couple of people had interactions with coyotes, some negative. We, we interviewed a woman, you know, who is a biologist who had been studying coyotes in this area. Um, and that was all very interesting. But I really wanted to kind of take a step back and look at this 30,000 foot view. Like what, you know, how does this fit into the larger context of our relationship with coyotes over, you know, the past century or so? Yeah. And and, you know, as, as I kind of alluded to before, um, you know, we went through this really long period of time where, you know, especially, you know, once European settlers arrived onto this continent and started settling what became the United States, we actually had this amazing sort of, you know, what was called in, in some cases, the American Serengeti, right? We had this great plains area that had, it was home to 30 million bison, elk, pronghorn, bears, wolves, mountain lions, like this just plethora of these really amazing animals that really rivaled Africa in, in a lot of respects. And, you know, over a couple hundred years, 150 years, and then, you know, we really um, we we had this concerted effort where, you know, hunters were, were killing these animals, um, ranchers started to settle and kill these animals. And there were these federal programs that were, that, you know, really backed this program of eradicating all of these animals from the Great Plains. Yeah. And, you know, of course, predators were a big deal. You know, if, if you're ranching, the existence of predators, mountain lions, bears, wolves, that's that's a threat to your livelihood. And so we actually invested a lot of resources into eradicating all of these animals. And, um, you know, we we're pretty successfully, right? I mean, we've, we've pretty much that, eliminated. I find that <laughs> yeah. one of the things that I find so infuriating is especially, especially government funded programs. And uh, at the beginning of your film, there's a, a lot going on with, you know, just uh, human beings eradicating animals just relentlessly, you know, with no thought as to the repercussions in the future. And uh, but, you know, this, you know, it's to this day, this is a problem. Like it, we've got, you know, we've got uh, like people being funded by the government to take automatic weapons and kill wolves in certain areas. And it's, mm -hmm. <laughs> But uh, I, I don't want to get on my soapbox about and I about about that because I do I'm, I'm tempted to do that sometimes. But I wanted to uh, <laughs> you you said something that really really resonated with me. It's a uh, because it's my own personal experience with coyotes specifically as far as where you see them, you know where you used to see them. Uh, and I used to spend a lot of time in Tucson, Arizona. That's where I was born, and mm -hmm. I like to go mountain biking. So I'd see coyotes all the time because I was out where there weren't many people. And, but nowadays uh, you know, I live in a metropolitan, you know, I live in metropolitan Nashville and I see coyotes walking down my street. They're in my front yard. Uh, we actually got on, like you were saying, people at the news, uh, we got on the, actual, the national news because they found a coyote in the bathroom of the music city center. And that's like, 
that's our huge convention center. <laughs> right. it's, it's right in the middle of downtown and it's a long way from any real wilderness. And, you know, somebody came into work one day, opened up the bathroom and there was a coyote hanging out, you know, in, on the sink. And, you know, they, they just, that means that coyote was just walking around downtown Nashville, mm-hmm. which is, you know, has gotten to be quite a large city these days. Uh, going into that though, uh, one question I have is, you know, why does it seem like coyotes are popping up everywhere? And like, and you, you had said, you know, there's an expansion, uh, but also where I, it, I think a lot of people are not familiar with this. What, what regions were coyotes originally, you know, that, what, that was their original territory before, mm-hmm. before the expansion. And then what, what's causing the expansion and why are they in cities now? Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. And one of the things that, that Dan Flores says actually in the film and in his book is coyotes have always lived among humans. Um, you know, in, in some of the more ancient cities in North America, there's evidence that you know, coyotes benefit from some of the, um, you know, we, we create spaces where rats and mice, for instance, like to, like to exist. And so coyotes, that's one of their key prey. So they, they've always really liked to um, live among people, but we haven't really experienced that so much until I think really the last few decades. And initially, you know, I won't say in, in, in sort of recent modern history coyotes obviously they populate the great plains the southwestern part of the united states but as we began to eradicate all of the animals that live there particularly the predators a lot of kind of the larger predators were relatively easy for us to completely eradicate from a particular area when we started to sort of turn our sights on the coyote that's when we sort of started to experience a little bit more difficulty. And one of the things I really love about the coyote is that um, it actually exhibits, uh, it's a fish infusion animal. And there are not too many fish infusion animals in the world. Humans are actually one of those types of animals. What uh, what is, Um, can you, can you repeat that term? Yeah, it's called fish infusion. So what that means is that, um, so the, the coyote, you know, the, the wolf, for instance, is a, it's a fusion animal. It's pack oriented. It only exists within the confines of a pack. That's how it survives. Okay. And because it is a pack oriented animal, it's actually a lot easier. You know, you kill one, you can kill all of them. So it's a little bit easier to eradicate. The coyote, on the other hand, is a fission fusion animal. And what that means is that they can either exist in kind of these loose packs or they can exist as individuals. And so what happened when we started to really, you know, step up the persecution of the coyote and start and try to eradicate them from their natural, you know, the the territory they had existed in was that, um, you know, one of the things that happened is that some of these animals sort of started to expand their territory. They could kind of go off as individuals or as pairs. It was less easy to eradicate them because of this fission fusion characteristic, you know, much like humans, very adaptable, can kind of exist anywhere. So Mm -hmm. that to me is really interesting. And I don't know if you talked about this. I I know you had uh, discussed an author um, who used a lot of sort of Native American um, coyote mythology in in his work. Um, Yeah, the the trickster. Yes, yes. And, And Native Americans, you know, really revered the coyote and um, sort of saw the coyote as an avatar for humans and kind of taught lessons as sort of this avatar for humans, which I also found really fascinating. Um, so one of the reasons that the coyote has been able to expand its territory is because of that fish infusion. You know, they can sort of take up, leave, um, start to populate new areas. It's, a, it's easier for them to do that because they are these you know, fish infusion animals. So that's one of the reasons that their territory has expanded. Um, there are some reason there are some biological adaptations that the coyote exhibits that make it very difficult to eradicate. Um, and that's another reason that you know we they've not only 
sort of survived where they are, but actually thrived despite this persecution and this attempt to eradicate them. And there are a number of things that actually contribute to that. Um, first of all, if you kill coyotes, they, you know, exhibit a biological response where, you know, they'll have larger litters. Um, and they can pretty easily. Oh, wow. Uh, That's it, cool. Yeah. Yeah. It's really interesting. So their litter size will increase um, to kind of compensate for that. Um, so there are a whole host of things that, you know, that really make the coyote extremely flexible and adaptable to these conditions. So, you know, and actually, you know, we're kind of getting into this whole the whole discussion of, you know, why not just kill, why, why doesn't it work to just kill coyotes? Why can't you just shoot them and get rid of all your, you know, human wildlife issues that way. Right. Yeah. Um, and I know that, you know, it's, it's been a big discussion, especially in some of these new areas where, you know, in here in New England, um, the, the reason I actually got involved in this whole story to begin with was because we were experiencing, you know, People were seeing coyotes all over Rhode Island. We weren't used to it. It, you know, understandably frightened people. Some people were losing their, you know, their cats, their dogs. And so there was kind of this big uproar, you know, we need to, you know, kill them. We shouldn't be, you know, coyotes shouldn't exist here. Um, and one of the people that I interviewed for the film was this biologist, as I mentioned, and um, she had spent several years studying the coyotes, you know, sort of putting collars on them, tracking where they lived. And, you know, she was able to confirm from you know, some of the studies that had been done previously that if you, if you mm. kill coyotes, if they exist in packs, they'll have an alpha male and female and usually like, you know, a couple other um, younger siblings from the previous year um, in that pack. And they, their territory is as big as they need that territory to be in order for them to, um, you know, to have enough food to survive. So the, the alpha male and female are the only breeders in that territory. And they also defend the territory, right? So you don't get other coyotes coming in. That alpha male and female and the pups live in that territory. They keep it relatively stable. You know, they, you know they're very good neighbors in terms of, you know, reducing... Um, some of the other animals that we view as pests, right? They keep, they balance the ecosystem within that area. And if you actually come in and try to, you know, shoot those coyotes, if you kill one of the alphas or both of the alphas, what happens is um, some of the, you know, we call them transient coyotes, or this is what the biologist calls them for this study here in Rhode Island. Um, the coyotes that don't live in that territory are then feel free because it's no longer being defended by the alpha male and female, you actually get more coyotes coming into that territory to sort of duke it out and try to, you know, own that territory. And in addition to that, um, whereas before only the alpha male and female were breeders, um, if you shoot them out, um, new co coyotes will come in and breed with the, with the yearling pups. And so you'll end up with more litters of puppies, greater numbers. And so you're actually just, you know, you think you're actually reducing the numbers and all you're doing is sort of exacerbating wow. the issue. So, yeah. yeah. So, so when these people come in, they, yeah. So they, they kill the alpha, uh, the alpha animals. And the direct result of that is to create larger litters of puppies. I mean, that's like, yeah. like a direct one-to-one -one result. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's really interesting. And so not only, you know, not only, you know, do, would the single female actually, you know, have larger litters to to sort of make up for that, but you may have more than one female then breeding, especially if you're shooting out the alphas that defend the territory. And so, you know, the numbers just keep, the, you know, essentially the numbers just, you know, keep um, increasing until you're at the same point or, you know, maybe have more than you did before. And, um, you know, you, so you don't want to destabilize that area. Um, the important thing that I, I think we've learned is that we need to understand how we can adjust our behavior to coexist with coyotes versus, you know, trying to kill them and eradicate them. That has not worked. For over centuries. I think that's the the philosophy that more people should try to have too, because nature wants to be in balance already. 
you know, and it's Absolutely. humans are the element that is out of balance. So we're, we are the ones that create imbalance. We are the one, you know, and, and then, and there's probably no better, you know, like not, I mean, there's sort of, there's plenty of great examples, but you just gave such an incredibly good example of humans causing imbalance by uh, disrupting the natural order of the coyote population and then increasing the coyote population. And which, which also is uh, what an incredible evolutionary trait <laughs> to be, you know, to, to their benefit. Um, I did have one question too, that you, uh, you this, this is a, kind of a leap, but it's kind of goes back to just a few things you said just a little bit ago. And one in the very beginning, you were talking about in new England, uh, that wolves were extirpated. There are no wolves there now, but we've been talking about the uh, biological attributes of coyotes, the evolutionary benefits they have, you know, how they're able to continue. Um, but also there is now wolf DNA in the coyotes, right? Yeah. You, you bring up a really, really interesting, and this is, this is super fascinating no, coyotes have always been able to breed with dogs and with wolves. Um, and, you know, there, there were certainly some instances um, in the Great Plains and the, the southwestern area where as wolves were being extirpated from those areas, um, some of them started breeding with coyotes or with, um, you know, with, with domesticated dogs uh, because it was the only options. But it was not quite you know, it wasn't really a common occurrence. As we, we tried to eradicate coyotes from the Great Plains, um, they started to expand their territories, as I mentioned, to the east, but also kind of up north through Canada and then to the east that way. And what ended up happening is as they made their way through Canada and then sort of came down into New England, um, they had, you know, many of them had bred with wolves in Canada and so the, the coyotes that made it to New England, many of them ended up with having, you know, anywhere between eight to 30% wolf DNA in them. And it's a tiny bit of dog here and there as well. And so what ended up happening is the coyotes, you know, many of them that settled the New England region ended up being a slightly larger animal. So, um, you know, the coyotes in the Great Plains Southwest 25 to 35, 40 pounds, sometimes a little bit larger than that. Yeah. But the ones that ended up coming into to New England, um, you know, had kind of brought that wolf DNA with them, ended <clears> up, you know, the, the coyotes that we have here are anywhere, be, you know, between 35. Um, we've had coyotes weighing up to 60, 62 pounds in this area, which is really a phenomenal um, evolution of the animal. I actually, I just, uh, I just, this literally just happened, I think a week ago. Um, a friend of mine sent me a photograph of a coyote. It's uh he lives in the same neighborhood as me. And he's like, look at the, this coyote. And I was immediately like, I was like, that's a wolf. I mean, that's, <laughs> uh, cause like I was, like I told you earlier, uh, you know, early, early on in my life, like in Tucson and, uh, the, the coyotes of the Southwest, like you're saying, they're, they're very small. They're small. There's, they look like small fluffy dogs and they're not intimidating even in, even in groups. I've never, I've never felt in any kind of danger whatsoever around uh, coyotes, especially the ones that I'm familiar with the most, because they are small. It seems like it would take a lot of them to take down a, mm -hmm. a grown adult, but also they don't seem interested in doing that either. But yeah, uh, just to your point, um, my friend just, you know, he, he took a photograph with his phone, sent it to me. It was a week ago. And my, my very first, uh, the first thing I said though, I was like, that has to be a wolf. There's no way there's, that's a coyote, <laughs> but it, well, you know, but we don't have wolves walking around here. I mean that, so it does have to be a coyote and it's certainly uh, to what you're saying. It must have just, uh, you know, it's the wolf DNA must've, you know, is made this coyote twice the size of any coyote I'd, you know, I typically have seen. Well, it's interesting too because um, I, I think I think people routinely sort of, you know, and this is totally understandable. It happens a lot in this area. People sort of routinely overestimate how large, you know, an unusual predator is, and a lot of coyotes will have this kind of these kind of thick, 
coats, particularly in certain times of the year that really make them look a lot bigger than they are. Yeah. Um, but that said, you know, we still here in New England, um, you know, they're still not there's they still just don't pose as much of a threat as as, as wolves would. Right. Wolves yeah. can get up to what, 100 125 pounds. I mean, they, they're really large. And if you see a picture of a coyote next to a wolf, you're like, wow, that's. that's oh, yeah. Really <laughs> yeah. <different. laughs> oh, and I, no, but, and I, I agree yeah. entirely that, that that coyote had had a winter coat. And yeah, it was also just that I was just so pr- surprised to see uh, an animal that large walking on his sidewalk. Yep. But uh, yeah, yeah right. uh, there's a little pack of coyotes over here that uh, like they, I, I live by a creek. And they like to, they love to hang out down there and they come in my front yard and they're all very small dogs. They all, you know, they're, they all seem yeah. like they're all between 20, I mean, uh, 30 and 40 pounds is my guesstimate right. on all of them. Right. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I'm, I'm always interested to hear these stories. This is great. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you're in the perfect area for coyotes. But yeah, but it is great. I mean, if you see a coyote that weighs 50 pounds, that's a big looking coyote. <laughs> it really is. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And it, it's interesting. I, you know, the ones that have gotten up to, you know, like I said, I think it was, I think it was either Massachusetts or maybe New Hampshire. There was one that was, that weighed, you know, 60, 62 pounds. And that's a very large coyote. That's unusual. We don't typically get them that large, but, you know, obviously it does happen. The interesting thing about them too, is that, you know, here in New England, we extirpated the wolf a very long time ago. We're totally unaccustomed to coexisting with any kind of, you know, significant predator in this area. And, um, you know, we, we do have a lot of deer in this area. So as, as these sort of new, some people are calling them Eastern coyote. Um, I, I'm sure you've heard the, the term koi wolf which um, I, I know some people are, you know, don't like to use that term because they think it's a little bit alarmist and sort of creates additional fear around these animals. I've, I've actually, uh, I've, 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 ne- I've never heard the term. It's uh, koi wolf. Yeah. Yeah. Like koi, so, koi so, like shy. No, like coyote wolf. Oh, okay. I'm, I, yeah, yeah. I completely <laughs> misunderstood you. I was like, oh, like a shy wolf. I was like, they're all, they're all kind of shy. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so, I mean, it, it's interesting because we've had some folks in this area who've done, you know, done some of these studies on, on the DNA, which is, you know, how we have evidence of this. But, um, you know, we, we're, we've been calling it the Eastern Coyote. And it's, it's fascinating because this is an evolution of the species that's happened only over the past few decades, right? Yeah. Um, so it, it's really amazing to kind of be able to see that. And they start to exhibit, um, you know, some of these larger animals are more effective at occasionally taking deer. It's not, you know, that's not typically what their diet is, but, you know, they, they certainly can. Um, and those that live in, in, the, in the family group and the pack, um, you know, some of them have become more proficient at taking down some of these larger animals like deer. We have a lot of deer in this area. Yeah. Um, so it's just really fascinating to to kind of see that evolution. Um, but, I'd like to say know, I, one thing that's that's okay. I probably very very unlikely, but like you said, it's uh, it's biologically possible, and, and it could be something. You know, there could at some point there could have been a Great Dane or some other right. kind of large dog yeah. uh, that made it with a coyote, and then that litter of coyotes is going to be a, a, there's going to be a bunch of big coyotes and they're going to carry that gene down. So I know that's unlikely, but it's not out of the question. No, I mean, it's not out of the question It's you know, it happens certainly. And it, we've seen it here in new England, you know, obviously there's, you know, here and there, we, we do get um, domesticated dog DNA in, in some of these coyote lines. So absolutely. I think it's absolutely possible. Um, yeah. It's really, really interesting. Um, but I do, you know, as I'm sort of talking about this, I, I know that it's, it, you know, it's one of these things that alarms people because here in New England, haven't had wolves for a very long time. 
you know, we're starting to see some more predators like bears and bobcats. And um, there have been some reports of the occasional mountain lion, which is very, very elusive. Um, but it, it's, this is a kind of a development that's frightening to a lot of people and understandably so. We're not used to, you know, we let our dogs and cats out. We're not really used to um, seeing this predator. Some people, you know, seeing the predator are really fascinated by it, you know, kind of want to draw it into their orbit. They'll leave food out either deliberately or inadvertently um, and kind of, you know, make these animals habituated to humans. And that, you know, in turn causes more and more issues because we end up having these human wildlife conflicts. Yeah. The animal becomes habituated to human beings. Right. Um, Would you say that maybe like in and the like the type of area you're describing like uh like a like a city in New England when you say a human wildlife conflict do you mean that uh specifically which i feel like it's it's the most kind of like salacious thing that people like to bring up is that coyotes might eat your pet right yeah so <laughs> yeah and and i i think things for kind of keeping me honest about that term so what what is human wildlife conflict it, that can cover a number of different things. And certainly a coyote can't eat your pet. And, uh, but the term covers everything from, oh, I saw a coyote walking down the street. It scared me. So I called the police. And, you know, that's okay. not really human wildlife conflict, but, you know, people just seeing a coyote going about its business normally and not, you know, not posing any kind of threat. Sometimes people perceive that as conflict, even if it's not. So, you know, part of what I think is really important is we need to understand what is normal coyote behavior. Um, you know, what should we expect versus what is not normal coyote behavior? Um, so, you know, coming onto your back porch and eating the dog food, not normal coyote behavior. We really want to discourage that because those coyotes are going to get habituated to people. Yeah. And, you know, people are going to lose their pets and that's, that's a bad thing. Right. I mean, you could do the exact same thing with grizzly bears. You could, you know, that's, that's, that's once again, that's, uh, that is humans being out of balance with nature. It's not, it's not nature. Uh, these, these coyotes don't want to come on your back porch, but if you're going to leave food out there for them, it's, it's, you know, it's like uh, people that feed squirrels. Right. (laughs) Right, 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 right. Right. Well, it, 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 this turns out to be kind of one of the, you know, the big, um, you know, one of the things that precipitates what ends up being, you know, actual human wildlife conflict. And and actually, I, I sort of start the movie, one of the opening, I think the second scene in the film is we get, um, I'm talking to this woman who um, had a dog that was taken by a coyote, right? I mean, that's, yeah a really traumatic thing. And I, I have a lot of empathy for that. I, you know, I lost a cat to a wild animal. That's it's, it's a devastating thing to have happened to you. And it happens where you have coyotes. Sometimes that does happen. You know, if you have cats outside, if you have small dogs that are off leash, that kind of thing is, it's definitely a risk. And so one of the things that we have to do as humans is we have to understand that coyotes can pose a threat to our small animals. And we have to make sure that we're walking them on leashes, you know, that your backyard is kind of fenced and insecure, that you're not leaving food out at night. There are things that we can do as humans to minimize that conflict and to minimize the, you know, potential of these animals getting habituated to to human beings. Right. Is there any more, I mean, I, I guess for like, for the sake of just keeping it more simple, uh, let's talk about just just New England and uh, the cities in New England and the way people feel in that area. Are there any other conflicts really besides like what we said, like, you know, obviously people would be concerned that a coyote might eat their pet if they have a small pet that's outside uh, or that if you saw a coyote, it might frighten you. And then, of course, uh, you have farmers whose their mm-hmm. concern is that a coyote might uh uh affect their livestock which i feel like that's probably when it comes on down to it where the where the money's at when when you have government mm-hmm. get, when you have government getting involved and paying people to go out with uh 
you know, with automatic rifles and shoot coyotes, that's, that's having to do with, uh, livestock ranchers. I, I'm going right, to guess, right. but, uh, but are, are there any, are there any other forms of, uh, human wildlife conflict that you're aware of besides kind of those obvious? You know, I think it's, it's primarily individuals, you know, concern for their pets or, you know, their small children or their own, you know, their own safety. And then as you, you brought up a really good example, you know, farmers and ranchers and, you know, t- typically the farms in New England are on a smaller scale than what we see, you know, out in the Western part of the United States. And, you know, because of that, there are things that maybe are more practical for farmers here to do in terms of fencing and barns and things of that nature. Um, but but what the study, you know, there have been a couple of studies that were done. And, um, you know, we find that when farmers who have livestock, you know, just sort of toss, they toss carcasses in a, in a pile not too far from, you know, where their livestock live, that's an invitation that, that supports you know, whole families of coyotes. It makes the territories um, smaller because territory typically expands so that um, the pack, you know, has enough um, area and has enough food availability. So if you have these sort of big piles of dead livestock, um, you know, you, you may have several packs come, you know, sort of adjacent to each other that can feed off of that. So it's really important that farmers and ranchers in this area, you know, take care of their livestock and and don't, you know, make sure they're protected, use guardian animals, don't just carelessly discard carcasses. There are things that can be done. And and if if I may, uh, to any New England uh, farmers or ranchers, if you're listening, something that I learned recently from uh, a previous guest who specializes in non-lethal predatory animal uh, deterrence. There's a very interesting thing that animals, especially uh, especially bears, specifically bears, but also coyotes, they don't like podcasts. So if you set up, they, it's, I swear I'm not, I'm not making it up. It's it's true. It's one of the it's one of the deterrents he uses. In addition to like scents and other other things that work really well on animals, uh, he's he'll set up speakers. And play oh, a podcast. Yeah. yeah, I'm talking talk about uh, Petros Christophus, uh, my 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 friend that uh, deters predatory <laughs> animals in a non-lethal fashion. He uses podcasts because uh, it's not you can't use it's not music because music doesn't sound like people talking. Podcasts because it is just the sound of human voices is a very deterring sound. So, just I just want to put that out there in case uh, any ranchers, uh, anyone who owns livestock in New England is looking for a way to deter, you know, just throw on your favorite podcast, or may I suggest throw on this podcast. I'd be honored to to help keep your livestock safe. (laughs) I love it. It, It's such, it's such a unique thing to say, but, um, it's actually a great idea because it, you know, it sounds like there are people around and generally speaking coyotes, you know, they don't want, you know, they want to avoid people unless they've been habituated. So it's actually a brilliant idea. Um, I, I have to say, and it's one I have never heard before. You know, I've heard of flag, you know, putting flags out and saying guardian what, livestock. <laughs> one of the things that I thought was so fascinating uh, learning about what are the most effective deterrents and, you know, because pe- people, of course, they want to think of the most expensive way to do something because they, they think the most expensive way to do something is going to be the best. And, and as we know, that's obvious. That's patently untrue all the time in any kind of subject. But in this one as well, you know, they had this, uh, you know, people, ranchers coming up with this thing where you you it's a drone. The drone costs about $10,000 and it's, I think it's, it's run. I don't even, I don't even know how the drone is run if it has an AI or what, and there's a paintball gun attached to the drone. So, I mean, it's getting, it's getting <laughs> so complicated and so ridiculous. And then this drone uh, patrols the perimeter of your, of your ranch. And then when it, if it spots a coyote, it shoots a paintball at it. And that is supposed to, ch- so anyways, this is, w- <laughs> you're starting with you're starting with ten thousand bucks for just the drone we're not even talking about the software the paintballs the paintball gun the fact that this thing 
almost certainly doesn't work because this kind of you know what this sounds like this sounds like a one of those like oh, like bloated military budget projects where they make a right. air, like right. a fighter jet that doesn't they can't take off. Uh, but yeah, but then they, they're like, well, you know what you could also do? You can take uh, a bunch of clothing and uh, saturate it with cigarette smoke, put leave that around the perimeter, and put up a podcast, and that'll keep the animals out. <laughs> That's I, that's actually that reminds me of sort of a funny story I I heard and I really wanted to include this in the film but they they absolutely um, I couldn't get them on on camera but um, so the you know Newport Rhode Island is you know there's a very as you probably know very wealthy section of Newport Rhode Island um, the Gilded Age mansions you know line the 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 coast it's there's a very exclusive golf course there and country club. Um, and there were um, people, you know, these members of the club golfers, um, they started seeing coyotes, you know, on the golf course and they really wanted to get rid of them. You know, I, so I, I think there was sort of a little bit of push pull here. There were some people who were sort of feeding kind of closet feeders, maybe tossing a sandwich or two to the coyotes and sort of encouraging them (laughs) to lose their fear of humans. And then there are people who are really angry that the coyotes were, you know, kind of crossing their golf course. And so (laughs) a couple of members took some, you know, paintball guns and a couple of golf carts and started kind of driving around trying to shoot them with paintballs to kind of scare them away, which I would have loved to have gotten on camera. They, you know, couldn't get them to agree to this. Um, but the great irony here is that um, the the biologist that was doing the study ended up finding out where the den was for this pack of coyotes. And it turns out it was like right underneath, I think, like an outdoor balcony for their, the country club. Oh, my so God. It was would have been a great, great scene for the film, but I, I couldn't, I couldn't get them to agree to, to talk about that on camera. If there's, if there's one thing I love, it is uh, stories of obscenely rich people being morons in a humiliating way. <laughs> <laughs> it just, it just, it just sounded so, you know, so funny and I can totally see them doing that. Um but you know, but yeah, this, it, it's just... <laughs> well, actually, uh, this was uh, what I did want to get to. So, I mean, we've talked about, you know, what the conflict is, why it's there. It's in, in, And some of them are very legitimate conflicts and some some less than others, of course, you know. Uh, but this is uh, one of the things that you uh, you're trying to get at and it's and trying to, you know, trying to figure out. And that's uh, coexistence. So, you know. I'm wondering uh, what are some of the methods for creating coexistence with coyotes and especially in these communities where coyotes seem to be a newer presence where people are not familiar with them. They maybe get a little bit more spooked because they're not, you know, Mm -hmm. they didn't grow up with with this animal. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, the number one thing is really educating people um, about the relatively simple steps that we can take to keep ourselves and our pets. Um, safe and also to keep coyotes safe. So just, you know, uh, just basic education on, you know, how coyotes operate, the benefits that they bring to our, to our local environments, whether that's, you know, suburban, urban, you know, there's a a lot of coyotes living in cities and they actually are pretty beneficial, you know, they're pretty beneficial to cities. They keep um, rodent populations down. Yeah. so it just basic education about how they operate, things that we absolutely should never do, like feeding them intentionally, um, sort of luring coyotes in so that they become habitu- habituated to humans, um, leaving cat and dog food or trash out and unprotected. There are basic things that we can do, um, you know, that are relatively easy that discourage coyotes from becoming habituated you know, making sure that we have our pets on a leash, um, making sure that they're not running free, especially, you know, during the spring when, you know, coyote dens have pups in them and coyotes are going to try to defend their dens. So there are relatively easy things like that, that we, that, you know, we need to do. And then if you do see a coyote becoming a little bit too familiar, um, hazing, 
being very loud, sort of trying to deliberately scare them away. Don't let them, you know, get habituated to humans. They're very intelligent and adaptable. And as long as kind of we do our part, for the most part, we, you know, we can minimize this kind of conflict. So I, I think that it's, you know, it's often not taking, you know, it, it, it doesn't require that much on our part to make sure that we're doing what we need to do to coexist. And then, of course, we already talked about from a farming perspective that, you know, there are other things that we can do as well to keep our livestock stock safe. It sounds to me like what you're saying is really, and it, and it seems like this seems almost ubiquitous to just almost every subject, but it seems like for promoting coexistence, it comes down to education, to ed- mm-hmm. educating, educating people on the facts and educating people on what they should do, the behavior, what the reality of it is. It, uh, it seems like that's kind of like square one where you want to start is getting people educated and aware of what the situation really is. Yeah. The, the education and then just having the willingness to do it. Right. You know, I sort of letting go of that hubris, that I think we have that, you know, causes so many issues in the world and just saying, you know, it's, it's a, we're willing to coexist to make sure that we have a balanced ecosystem and that, you know, we can appreciate the wildlife in our area. I think that's, you know, that's also a big part of it as well. Right. Yeah. And, and I guess, I mean, this, we could draw a perfect line here. Speaking of education, uh, American Bolshevik. It's a very, it's an edu- it's a documentary film. It's an educational film. I highly suggest everyone when it's out, <laughs> get, get out there and check it out. Uh, but I wanted to know about for, for your own personal experience, uh, when you were filming American Bolshevik, did you have any experiences that really stood out as like, as the best parts of the filmmaking process for you? Oh gosh, that's such a good question. Um, well, you know, I, I'd like to say, like, when I'm making a film, I, I get really, the people that are in my films, they're in the film because they, you know, they're interesting or they have a unique perspective. There's something important to say. And I always appreciate the folks that go out of their way. You know, they commit themselves to being in a film. They've got to, you know, I've got to sit down, talk to them. They're, they kind of like expose themselves. Like they, they're, they talk to me in a very honest way. And, um, and, and I, I just have everybody that I have in my films that I interview, um, I end up, <laughs> I end up spending a lot of much more time with them than they spend with me because, you know, once I interview them, um, you know, however many times that is, I go back and I spend hours and hours and hours with them. And I, you know, I really feel like I get to know them very, very well. So to me, just kind of, you know, getting to know these people and really appreciating the unique perspective that they bring. I, that's just something that I love, you know, from every single one of my films. And I always appreciate that people are willing to kind of, um, you know, to kind of talk to me and talk about, you know, uh, Diana, who's a prince is a philanthropist lives in Newport. She lost two of her dogs to coyote predation. And that's, you know, that's really sad and, you know, gut wrenching. Yeah. Um, but she was willing to kind of get on camera, talk about that. And then she's also very, you know, an intelligent and sort of creative person. And she spent a lot of time, you know, trying to figure out well, what can we do? And ultimately she ended up funding the study that um, in Rhode Island on coyotes. And so, um, you know, I ended up talking to the biologist that structured that study, as well as the sharpshooter that was hired by towns to kill coyotes that had, you know, were deemed to be troublesome. So I just, you know, I, I just really appreciate hearing their stories. I think that that's really interesting to me. Um, and I, so that part of it, I think that's, that's the part that I really, really love, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, that that's really the big part of it for me. And then just really digging deep into a, a topic, I think is fun and, and kind of being able to take a step back and look at, look at this issue within the context, you know, within a much larger context and having folks like um, Dan Flores, who's the author who, you know, kind of wrote this epic story of the coyote in America and to kind of be able to, you know, place these 
these, you know, smaller, more local stories, it was in the context of this, you know, very broad context of the history of Coyote in America. Um, to me, that's, that's kind of the, the part that I love most about it. Yeah, it does seem like uh, being a filmmaker or making a documentary uh, has a, and I'm sure this is similar to like, you know, also even, even being maybe even a novelist and, and to some extent, but it's the uh, making all these connections, meeting these people, hearing their stories. And through all, through all of that, uh, it all comes together and it builds this final product that seems like it must be, it must be just a exceptionally satisfying way to end with, you know, your, a work of art or a creation of, of, of however you want to describe it, you know, like, because the, there's so, like so many people along the way that help build the, I, f- I feel like I'm kind of repeating myself, but you know what I mean? <laughs> the final project. Yeah, no, no, I, <laughs> no, I, you're totally right about that. You're totally right about that. And then, you know, if, if this, you know, I, if this can help other people kind of understand more about coyotes, can help them kind of appreciate what coyotes, you know, the benefit that they bring to them and just appreciate the beauty and, you know, support some of the work we, you know, I interviewed um, Camilla Fox who founded Project Coyote and they work not just with coyotes, but predators in general and try to, you know, help educate people about the benefits of of predators and, you know, sort of really change hearts and minds about that. And, you know, really touch on, it's a tough world for predators and we don't make it easy. And, you know, just, you know, going back to the whole idea of the American Bolshevik, um, we have such a negative perception of them that, you know, we have allowed some really horrendous things to go on. You know, they're, they're hunted indiscriminately in many parts of the country in ways that, you know, I think would be extremely shocking and just horrifying to most people if they kind of knew what was going on. So, you know, if we can sort of highlight that work, I think, I think that that, you know, that really makes me happy too. And not to, uh, not to ask a a question to try and bring any negativity out, but I, but I am curious (laughs) just, uh, and uh, this is still about the film making or just making the film. And I just wanted to know like, what, what was the hardest part? Like about making this film, like what? Oh God, yeah, that's easy. I, I will tell <laughs> oh, okay, okay. Yeah, um, <laughs> that, yeah the, the the hardest part. This was just it was so emotionally devastating. Um, I, you know, I, I interviewed Camilla Fox of Project Coyote, um, and you know some of the work that they do around you know drawing, you know, shining a light on how we treat predators um, and you know, what happens in killing contests and there are just some horrific, horrific things that go on in the world. And in order to sort of illustrate some of the points that she was making, I had to go onto YouTube and watch dozens and dozens of video. I mean, you wouldn't believe the people who just sort of kill coyotes for sport and for fun. It's yeah. horrifying. <laughs> there yeah. are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these things. And I had to kind of go through and watch these things and and select a couple of, you know, clips to illustrate it, but that was, it was just devastating. It, it was so hard to do. <laughs> I, that, <that's> easy... <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't expecting you to say that, but uh, man, that does sound, that sounds awful. And I'd, I've said this, if I've said it once, I've said it a million times, there's probably nothing that infuriates me more really than, than trophy hunting and and killing for the uh the thrill of the kill i i don't know i find it uh really really just uh barbaric and not you know and just you know flat out uncool i just i think it's a i think yeah, it's a, definitely a, a, uncool yeah it's, a, it's uncool but it's also <laughs> i think it's also sick you know i mean i think it's i think it's uncool and i also think it's like a you know it's like a an illness that people have to, that you know to bring pain and death is t- for pleasure is a bizarre to me. It, um, it's, it's very strange to me. It's very strange to me as well. And, you know, I, I, I understand people who hunt for food and, you know, are kind of ethical hunters. I do. I know plenty of people who do that. It's not something that I would choose to do, but I understand it. Yeah. And, you know, I, re- I respect that, but 
you know, I just saw too many instances of, you know, torturing coyotes, like just doing things that, that would be illegal if you did it to almost any other animal. If you did it to a dog, it would certainly send you to prison. But for a coyote, you know, it's, it's just totally acceptable from a legal perspective. And, and that's, that's really disturbing. Yes. Yes, of course. And yeah, I, I don't know. I, I will say this <laughs> is that uh, I'm not going to end this on a, on a horrible note (laughs) (laughs) because I've got, I've got, (laughs) I've got really good news and that's, we're getting dangerously close to the lightning round. (laughs) So I was, I was a little worried because I had written down in my notes. I was like, you know, I got to ask what's the hardest thing about this, about making this film. I was worried you were going to say something about animal cruelty and, and you did. And so, but I'm so sorry, but that's what it was. But but before, but we're going to play a little game right now and we're going to cleanse our palates. Um, All right. Excellent. A palate cleanser. I like that. Okay. I, I did not write this lightning round. This lightning round was written by co-producer Colleen. She actually uh, just dropped this off in the office while I was talking to you about 20 minutes ago. I haven't read this. I have no idea what I'm about to read you, but I will tell you the rules. The lightning round. I ask you questions super fast. You don't have time to think. Gut reaction only. These come in many forms. I'm going to find out what what you got today. Ooh, you got one of the hardest ones. It's a this or that. So I'm sure I'm sure you're familiar with the game. Would you rather? Yep. 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 This is like that. So you might not be uh, happy with your answer, but one's got to (laughs) go and one's got to stay. This is called. Lightning round, this or that, the documentary edition. So it is personalized to you for being oh a documentary filmmaker. Okay. All right, let's hit it. I have All a right. feeling I have a feeling you're gonna win. Uh first one. Oh, these are two films. Supersize Me or March of the Penguins. Oh, that's so hard, but I'm gonna take March of the Penguins. But that's hard. That is hard. <laughs> they're yeah. both they're both great. Uh yeah. ooh, okay, here we go. This is this is kind of this is kind of crazy. Uh, win an Oscar or viral clip on TikTok? Oh, that's just a no-brainer. Yeah. 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 Viral clip. No, I'm just kidding. Oscar. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. What 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 is it? What, what did you say? Because you yeah, never no, answered. De- definitely. Yeah, no, I, I would say I would definitely say Oscar, even though like it, it's so funny because I just um I just do these because I love doing them and I love, you know, talking to people about various topics. And so it, it never really enters my mind, even when I, when I'm doing it, but yeah, I totally off. Yeah. Okay. Um, make a documentary in a language you don't speak or make a documentary about something you don't know about. Well, that seems easy too. Oh gosh. Um, so every time I make a documentary, it's something I don't know about. Like, That's what I was gonna say. So so I already did that. I I I I do um you know I just I learned so much when I'm making the documentary. So I would I think it would be fascinating to do a documentary in a language you don't speak. I yeah, say that you'd have to get some uh, Rosetta Stone and some Duolingo and really <laughs> really <laughs> really hit the grindstone <laughs> on that one. Right. <laughs> People in that right. country will be watching it going, what is she talking <laughs> what about? What the heck? <laughs> okay. Uh, ooh. Make a documentary about tarantulas or make a documentary about MRSA virus, a.k.a. flesh-eating bacteria. Oh, God. They're both so fascinating. Um, hmm. I mean, what's I mean, when you're a kid, like tarantulas are just like the most fascinating thing, like kind of scary, fascinating. MRSA also very scary, fascinating. Um, I'm going to say tarantulas, though. OK, um, I'm sorry, Julie, though, I will <laughs> I will not be watching your film on tarantulas. I'm, I'm, I'm a little I'm a little freaked out by tarantulas. I'm a lot freaked out by tarantulas. I'm trying to act. Well, you're going to, to be pretty here. freaked out about MRSA, too. <laughs> you know, but it doesn't like crawl towards me in a i don't know <laughs> you feel like you could avoid it and and yeah no no i get it tarantulas yeah i just they were so fascinating i remember when we were kids yeah Ooh, here this one's a wild one all right you've, you've got all the uh film equipment you need but you have a budget of a thousand dollars or you can shoot video you can only shoot video 
with a old flip phone, but you have an unlimited budget. You could spend unlimited money on it, but you can only shoot it with a flip phone. Um, oh, I would I would take unlimited flip phones just because I would just go to so many places. I think that yeah. would be yeah. Yeah, yep, it, just answer. just for the experience, you could just turn it into a. a oh, yeah. I'm I'm making a documentary of where I see the entire world. <laughs> right, right, exactly. Oh. <laughs> I do every bucket list thing on right in every part of the world imaginable. Right. Co-producer Colleen did not let you off easy though. Here, uh, last one, and I don't know. I'm so I'm I'm very curious to hear how you answer this, but we we've, we've got two of the greatest voices in documentary voiceover and you're gonna have to choose one uh sir david attenborough or morgan freeman oh that's just cruel colleen that is just cruel she, she always sneaks one in always one uh, uh, <laughs> i'm gonna say morgan freeman though really yeah oh yep. man he's, he's great he's yep. great oh you know my son would insist my son would be like yep no absolutely yeah yeah, no. I think, man, I think I might have to go with Sir David Attenborough. Is that? Yeah. Because I feel like the British accent that. makes it sound. <laughs> it. Yeah. And he's I done. Get it. I get it. I mean, I love them. I love them both. I don't know. Ah, uh, you know what? It's not about it's me. It's about one. you. You chose Morgan. You chose Morgan Freeman. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I have, I have one last question for you. It's the most important question of the day. Your new film, American Bolshevik. Where and when can people check it out? In addition to that, uh, anything else? Anything else you want them like to link to to check out uh, what's going on with this film and you know everything, all the good stuff. Yeah, definitely. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. Um, so we have a web page for the film. It's AmericanBolshevik.com. Um, I'll be adding stuff to that. It's actually being released probably at the end of January. I don't have a firm date yet, but it'll be on Amazon Prime Video and Apple TV. And um, we've got a couple of, um, we've got a TikTok account, American Bolshevik. It's at American Bolshevik on TikTok. We're just kind of uploading, you know, some clips of coyotes. Um, We'll start to include some clips from the film. And then on Twitter, it's at American Bolshev, ending on the V, um, because of Twitter rules. So you can yeah. certainly check us out there as well. And um, we'll be, as we start to advertise, we'll get up on Instagram and Facebook. So that's about it. Okay. And uh, everyone that follows me, I will do my absolute best to link to as many of these things as I can on my socials. So if that makes it any easier on you. Julie, uh, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for teaching me so much about coyotes. Well, and... thank you for having me. <laughs> I appreciate it. Absolutely.